Hi guys, I'm happy to announce that I've just launched my new app called Say Hello. It's a speech sound practice app designed for parents of children who are receiving speech therapy for articulation and intelligibility impairments. Think of this app as a quick and engaging way for parents to complete speech homework without the fuss of those practice packets that we photocopy and they just are never seen again. It makes practice sessions easy and accessible while also helping parents to be natural coaches and know exactly how to cue their child to make their speech sounds correctly. So we all know that children who practice their speech sounds daily are more likely to make progress. This means the more they practice with the child, the less time will be spent in speech therapy and more confidence for their child. Say Hello provides parents with quick guided practice sessions that they can do anywhere. Working in conjunction with their speech therapist, they pick the sound the child needs to work on and follow the provided prompts. Parents select the time that works best for them to receive notifications, and they can complete a practice session in three to five minutes. So we offer a free seven-day trial, and after that, it's just $4.95 a month. Check it out wherever you get your apps. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geiser and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we are finishing up Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. But first, we're going to play Show Me You Know Me. And today, I've picked some really fun ones. I don't know what you think, Adrian. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm really excited. Okay. Do you want to start? Sure, sure. Okay. Okay. And remember, we played it wrong last time. So you're going to read them and I'm going to guess about you. I'm going to guess which one applies to you. It's hard because sometimes I read these and I'm like, I would love to share my answer, you know, but I guess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's the point of the game. And we played it wrong last time. Okay. Well, (laughs) great. Okay. Here we go. If you could learn the answer to any one of these four mysteries... You would choose A, who shot JFK, B, what really happened in Area 51, C, what is the purpose and origin of Stonehenge? (laughs) I love to think of who wrote this question. They're just like, what's going on with that? (laughs) D, who was Jack the Ripper? Oh, okay. If you could know the answer to one of those, it would for sure be what happened at Area 51. Okay, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think of my answer because I think I already know, you know? Oh, (laughs) she knows too much already. I just need to know more. Um, I have done my own research, and Uh, over time, I have deduced that I do think I know what happened in Area 51. Okay. So, In a wild card move, I think I'm going to go with what is the purpose and origin of Stonehenge. Okay. I also have a pretty good, a pretty good idea about that, but it would be nice to have like confirmation. Okay. See, when you laughed, I was like, wait, Stonehenge would probably be my answer. (laughs) And I was like, she doesn't want to know. My gosh. Okay. So I was thinking you would want to know about Jack the Ripper because you're kind of like true crime girl. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I'm like, not that. Even though I've heard people tell it, I listen to so much true crime that I'm not like super familiar even with Jack the Ripper. Like they all blend together, those old timey ones. I would probably go Stonehenge or JFK. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, Stonehenge, what do we know about it? It's like, oh, it, it aligns with the solstice. Like, it's very, like, esoteric. I'm so curious about it. Yeah. Wait, but you said you have a theory. <laughs> have you watched some videos? <laughs> yeah. Here I am, deep in a weird YouTube rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it maybe had to do with aliens. Okay. For sure. Because it's so aligned with not only the solstices, but, like, the constellations and stuff. Uh-huh. So it might have to do with aliens or maybe it was just ritualistic. Maybe it has to do with like magic. I don't know. I'm like, there's, I think a couple things going on. Okay. If I could make any mundane everyday activity into an Olympic sport, I'd have the best chance to win gold at texting, tossing crumpled paper into a recycling bin, packing, speed and organization counts, or parallel parking. Wow. This is tricky. What do you think about me? Process of elimination. Here we go. I don't think it's texting. Not that you're a bad texter. I don't think it's the throwing one. That seems so random. Mm-hmm. I, I feel conflicted between packing and parallel parking. I say C, packing. The answer is parallel parking. <laughs> <laughs> close. So close. <laughs> I feel like... Um, yeah, packing would probably be a close second. I am a, an excellent packer. I've got those like compartments that you put into your suitcase to like keep your intimates. Oh, the cubes. <laughs> I love the cubes. But I really, I never could parallel park. And then I have had two separate male influences in my life. An ex-boyfriend who taught me how to get out of a tight spot. Okay. I can get out if somebody totally boxes oh, nice. me in. And then my fiance now taught me how to parallel park and I can get into unbelievable spots. I also like to help other people parallel park. I will help strangers if I see them about to give up on a spot. I'll go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can do this. Are you ready? Pull forward. (laughs) Wow. I'll totally give them instructions. Good Samaritan. I feel very proud of it. Sometimes I get out after I park and I'm like looking around like, did anybody see that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Especially in LA, we don't we don't have to do it here in LA very much because even when you're in really busy parts of the city, it's all metered, so everyone has to park a certain distance from each other. It's not like you're squeezing very often. But on my old street, I had to do it a lot. So that is the thing I feel about parallel parking is it's like the more you practice, obviously the better you get and you have to be living in a situation where it like calls for it Yeah, because I'm not very good, but I have a friend who lives in a city where it's all parallel parking, all street parking Yeah, and she is so good. Oh yeah. And I'm just like, well, well, there's a be, science to it. Like there is an exact it's science. It's like the angles. Yeah. The angles. You pull. I, I even have. Exactly even. Yeah, tell me. Okay. You pull exactly okay. even with the front car. So that the back of your car is right at the end of the back of their car, really close to them, as close as you can get. And then you turn your wheel to the right exactly one time, one time only. Okay? You rotate (laughs) exactly one time. And then you just take your foot off the brake. Yeah. And you roll backwards. And then about like halfway through, you turn it all the way the other way and you will slide into the spot. And you might not even have to adjust. You might just be in the spot. Okay. Listen, (laughs) I'm going to have the opportunity to practice this today. (laughs) So I will let you know how it goes because I was given a hard time the other night because there was a spot. It was generous. 
it was big. And I Uh was like, I don't, I just like pulled up like 40 feet and parked in a different spot. And yeah, I would like to show that person. No, well, it's all, I think, I think what I didn't know was that you turn your wheel exactly one time. I think I was just doing it willy nilly, either turning it all the way or pulling up exactly equal with the car. Sometimes I'm like, maybe it's three quarters, Mm -hmm. but the angle. Okay. All right. No, no. Thank you. (laughs) Love the info. Um, I don't even know if I need to answer that question for myself. Is it going to be packing for you? I don't know. I overpack. I'm horrible overpacker. Yeah. You know what? Um, I always. Me too. Me too. I always have like, I would say 40 to 50% of what I bring. I don't even touch. I don't even wear it. Oh, I know. But the options, you need it, you know? I know. But do you do the Mm. thing where when you get home, you feel like you need to wash everything because it's like been in your suitcase? And it's been in there with yeah. dirty clothes. So then. Yeah. And to be. It's a lot of The work. one thing I never bring enough, even though I think I bring so many, is underwear. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't run out. But sometimes it gets close to the wire. And I'm like, whoa, I packed like 16 pounds. How do I not have any others? <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> it's relatable. <laughs> okay. Let's do one more. Laura, I feel like we talk about road rage a lot, probably just because of where we live. But we're going to talk about it again right now. So if someone cut you off while you were driving and gave you the finger, would you, A, honk your horn, give them the finger back and get a bit heated? Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. Okay. B, explode in road rage. I might even stop and fight. Uh I know the answer to this already. (laughs) For you. (laughs) C, get a bit scared, but drive away without any confrontation. Or D, try to get the license plate and report them C for you. Yeah. Same for you, right? I'm so terrified of people. I would never engage with someone. Yeah. I would feel very mad. I would feel scared and probably very mad. Yeah. And it would linger with me. Yeah. You know, maybe for an hour or so. Like, was I really doing something that bad? Why would they flip me off? Like, was that my fault? Mm -hmm. You know. Oh. But I would never, ever, ever try to, like, engage. You hear too many stories of people who fly off the handle over road rage incidents and I personally have been involved in them a little bit been a little bit too been a little chased before and you just go I mean you have to afterwards go this is something going on with that person it has nothing to do with me you know just because we were both trying to merge into the same lane at the same time and like yeah. There's often very harmless things you do. It's not like I'm like on my phone while I'm driving. I don't. Yeah. So I just feel like people, it is interesting what happens to people in the car, but I am so, I avoid confrontation so much. Me too. Oh my gosh. All right. No well, way. We already know we're very similar <laughs> from um, Smart But Scattered. Never forget. Smart But Scattered. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. Okay, wait. I have to... Hold on. Can I just oh, read you one more? Sure. If someone the same size and build as me offered me $10,000 every time they punched me in the face, <laughs> I would choose to be punched A, zero times. I don't need money that bad. B, one or two times. C, three or four times. Or D, five or more times. Money doesn't grow on trees. A? No. <laughs> B, I would take one or two punches in the face. Stop it. For $20,000? No. 
Oh, I walked right into that one. I was like, why are you asking me? Wait, <laughs> you wouldn't take one punch? No. For 10,000? Look at me. I grew up with sisters. I have zero uh -huh. brothers. I don't have a lot of experience with like physical violence. I don't want anybody punching <laughs> me in the face. <laughs> Even me and my sisters, we were the more of the like um steal my stuff, screaming, fighting, not like physically fighting yeah. type. So okay, I'm so scared. I'm such a chicken. I mean, I'm not saying I'd I'd love it. It would be horrifying, but. <laughs> You know, I think in the long I mean, run, you got to think about like two days later, are you happy that you have $20,000? But if they broke your nose or you get a black eye, I guess it would look kind of cool. Yeah. I don't what, know. What, a little black eye? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll think about this later. <laughs> Thank just, you, Laura. I had, Appreciate I had to let you know that about me. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us. After a quick break, we'll be back to finish up Uniquely Human. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. All right, welcome back. So today we're wrapping up Uniquely Human, and I'd love to tell you what chapters we're doing, but <laughs> it turns out that Adrian and I have different versions of the book. There is a new updated and expanded version that Adrian has been reading, and I have been reading the old outdated version. So this is my episode, and I'm covering chapters 11 and 12 from the old version. 
Yes. And then Adrian's going to fill us in with any information that he's added that she read about that she thinks is important. A little snafu. We had a little snafu, but we're going to make it work. So Yeah. I tried to get the new version. For whatever reason, it wouldn't even come through on my Kindle today. So we're going to make do. Chapter 11 is called Energize the Spirit. And Dr. Barry describes a new mom at his retreat who asked him about a program she had seen that claimed children could recover from autism. And that program was $1,000. And he says that many parents tell him that if they just had the resources, they would find the best place for their child and even move there to make sure they're in the best situation. But he says there's no special place, person, or treatment that can cure autism. And even the most successful adults with autism, like Temple Grandin, do not claim that they've recovered from autism. He says that there is a small percentage of people who were diagnosed with autism who over time no longer meet the DSM-5 criteria, but even some of them say later as adults, they will say, I do have Asperger's. And adults with autism have spoken out against this emphasis on recovery because autism is such an integral part of who they are. It's exhausting and draining to pursue recovery as the main outcome for the families and for the autistic children. And professionals who present recovery as being likely are violating ethics of professional practice because they know there's not any evidence that you can recover from autism. I do feel like what's most important is like compensatory strategies. So like learning how to I don't know, compensate for areas of weakness. And then also what we're going to cover later, which is being proud of who you are and sort of that acceptance piece. So I feel like the most successful adults probably have great support, accept themselves for who they are and recognize and have strategies to compensate for weaknesses. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this whole part, it's like we got into it was it last episode or the one before where I talked about that weird feeling I got from that family who yes. clearly had recovery as their main goal. And it was evidenced in the making me read that Sunrise book. And Sunrise is a program that claims that you can recover from autism and that their son did. Right. So yeah, I mean, I, I think overall, those programs are just really harmful to families. And imagine the kids being put through that where their successes aren't being celebrated because they're still not meeting that ultimate goal of looking normal, appearing normal to other people. It's just, it has to be that families celebrate success. I mean, we'll talk about it more in these, in the chapter, but it's like focusing on the strengths, identifying the weaknesses or challenges, and then, you know, finding ways to support. That's the goal. Yeah. And I really do feel like that's the common thread. Like, I don't know, Laura, I know you haven't worked too much at the middle school and secondary levels, but Mm -hmm. there is it's such a good feeling to sit in on a meeting, especially on a student. Maybe I'm new to them. They're in like sixth grade and having the family say, like, if you had seen our child in kindergarten or first grade, like you would not even recognize them. Yeah. And that I feel like should be like, that's the goal, right? Growth and progress, but not necessarily like golden key, I'm going to cure you of like your neurological difference, which just is never going to happen, right? Yeah. You know, I'm going to bring up a kid in a little bit um, that I worked with, but I'll I'll talk about him later in the chapter, but kind of a similar thing where the parents are like, if you only knew, if you only knew how far, and that's not to say that they were saying, look at him, he's just like a typical kid. They were still celebrating 
what makes him him, but just right. saying it's unbelievable, the progress. So it is, it's just amazing. He says instead, we should be maintaining hope, trying to minimize the challenges an autistic person faces and working to achieve good quality of life. If your focus is on recovery, you might miss all the good stuff along the way. And he describes visiting two different families that were kind of in the same position of just getting a diagnosis recently. And in one family, the father asked, will my son go to college? And in the other family, the mom asked, will my daughter ever be happy? And he's just using this to illustrate that two families can have this be in the same position, be facing similar situations, but have, you know, have really different priorities. It can feel overwhelming for parents when they are receiving advice, especially from parents of other kids with autism who swear by one thing or another, like telling them you need 40 hours of ABA a week, or you need to be mainstreamed in a general ed classroom or a gluten-free diet or go to a private school. So they could feel when they hear this, like one wrong choice can just cause irreparable damage. Parents might also hear harmful things like, if your child doesn't speak by age five, he never will speak. And then when that age hits and the child still isn't speaking, they start to really lose hope. And when stuff like that happens, it starts to become really difficult to perceive their strengths. And it's helpful to reframe and start to see little things as indicators the child is more interested in engaging. Instead of just holding speaking as the goal, you're seeing other ways that the child is engaging and communicating. Things like looking towards you when they're engaging with you or guiding your hand to a refrigerator could be things that are still celebrated, not just looked at as a failure. He also says it's really helpful for families to get to know other families that are further along. We've talked about that before. And then he has a section on which is better, happiness and sense of self or academic success. Parents often want to know what should be focused on in school. And as school SLPs, I think that we face this a lot, especially when there are decisions like for me, it was, you know, when kids are kind of on the verge of moving from common core curriculum to the alternate curriculum. That's a really hard decision for parents to make. And Mm -hmm. a lot of parents really do want the focus to be on academics. But Dr. Barry's priorities in order of importance are (laughs) building self-expression and self-esteem, instilling happiness, creating positive experiences, emphasizing healthy relationships, increasing self-awareness, and being able to emotionally self-regulate. He says positive experiences motivate children to learn, explore, and connect with others. Being happy makes other people want to be around you, but we often prioritize academics over happiness, even when it causes the child a lot of stress. Um, I did want to mention when you were talking about that moving from the core curriculum to alternative, just from a secondary perspective, I saw this same sort of thing happen a lot when parents had to make the choice of keeping their child on the track to get a diploma versus doing like I think the certificate of completion so that mm-hmm. they could go to a secondary or um, an adult transition program because in the district I worked in, and I think most districts, at least in California, yeah. you cannot have a high school diploma and be eligible to attend the district's adult transition program. Oh, So parents had to choose if it was so important to them that they get a diploma, they were basically making it inaccessible for them to have that program and that support till they were 22. But if they wanted that, they had to not they had to go outside of the diploma. And I just saw so many parents wrestling with this decision where I'm looking at their child. Maybe they have Down syndrome 
or something. And I'm like, wow, where is the priority? The priority is, and I think they even attended the graduation ceremony. It wasn't like that was taken away from them. It was just a different piece of paper. And yeah, it just really felt like that same thing. Like, where's the priority? They were still holding on to something else and being pretty in denial, especially when it's like, your child is really struggling academically in these classes they need to take yeah. in order to receive the diploma. If they were in these other classes that are more at their level, you know, they would be happier, just like what we're talking about. They'd be learning more life skills. They would be equipped for a better future and have access to programs that would support them after high school, too. Yeah. And that's such a hard decision. It's a hard decision to make then when it's so close. But then, yeah, when we were talking about switching to alternate curriculum, I mean, that that comes up even at like kindergarten level. When you're making that decision to switch, the parent will say, does this mean he can't get the diploma? And, you know, we have to inform them that if they stay on that. And I only saw one kid of the kids that I had on alternate curriculum. I only saw one transfer back to common core because a lot of times they say just because we switch him now doesn't mean he'll be on it forever and yeah technically but it's not very common Mm. for them to move back because the gap does widen the longer they're out of the core curriculum of course people often argue that it's more important to develop skills than to be happy (laughs) i don't know if they argue that but we learn more when we are happy So those people are kind of missing the point. When we're stressed, it's difficult to learn and retain information. So when this academic success is kind of being forced on these kids, are they even taking it in when they're kind of fighting it because it's so stressful for them along the way? And quality of life should just always be the main goal. Then he talks about self-determination. Oh, okay. This is where he talks about energize the spirit. This is good. He was once giving a presentation in New Zealand where the custom is for members of an indigenous tribe to open with a prayer ceremony, and they invited him to take part. And then just before the presentation, the elder from the tribe came and whispered in his ear, I trust that you will convey the message that in order to advance the mind, we must first energize the spirit. And he says that just totally resonant. He said like a a shiver went through his whole body (sighs) because he just believes and has always believed that in order for us to help autistic people have meaningful and fulfilling lives, we must find ways to engage them, build a sense of self and foster joyful experiences. So for Dr. Barry, people he meets... You know, when you meet a kid and you go like, oh, he's so spirited or he's got a great spirit or she's a free spirit. Those are the kids that have self-determination. They know who they are. They have some degree of say in their lives and they don't spend their days just responding to prompts. And as early as preschool, we should be finding ways to build self-determination by giving choices and allowing the child to make his own decisions and have control over his life. So that was chapter 11 of my version of the book. (laughs) <laughs> don't know don't know what yours was. <laughs> and then so chapter 12 is called The Big Questions. And Dr. Barry says no matter where he travels to speak, the big questions are always the same or similar. In all cultures, the same things come up over and over again. So this is really like, I think in your book, there's a section called like commonly asked questions or something like that. Yeah, frequently asked questions. That's probably this. I don't know. Yeah. So the first one is, 
is my child high functioning or low functioning? And he doesn't use these simplistic terms or things like mildly autistic or severely autistic. So he gives some examples, like if a child functions at grade level, but becomes so anxious that she bolts from her class and even out of the school, is she high functioning or low functioning? Or if a two-year-old can complete a really complicated puzzle, but cannot yet speak at all, is he high functioning or low functioning? He says there aren't commonly accepted definitions or any corresponding diagnostic criteria, and especially the term low functioning when applied to a child does not consider the whole child or their potential. And then teachers who use high functioning might be ignoring or minimizing the challenges the child faces. These terms unfairly predetermine a child's potential, especially when we use them at a young age, and it's better to just focus on relative strengths and challenges and identify the best ways to support the child than to focus on vague, imprecise labels. His next question, okay, this is where I was going to talk about one of my kids. Does the window of opportunity for helping a child close around age five? Is it too late after that? Mm-hmm. And I think that we put a lot of emphasis on like early intervention. <laughs> I think there's so much pressure on parents. Like we're sending out the message that they've missed this really important window, right? So I had a student who I met him when he was in third grade, when he transferred to our school. So it was one of those situations where we didn't know him until third grade. But his mom described to me that when it was time for him to enter kindergarten, he wasn't speaking and he was five. And she just felt like a lot of fear around sending her kid who couldn't talk to school. She kept him at home and just worked with him herself at home for a full year and then started him in kindergarten a year later once he had started speaking. And then he, I mean, he thrived. He was in like a, a special education autism class. He was such a joy. He was so verbal. I mean, just talked and talked and talked. But it's like, I don't know, sometimes we don't really know. Is it better to put the kid in all these therapies and put him in school really early, start him in a program, like when he's three or two, when it probably puts a lot of stress on the kid and the family? Right. This mom was just like, I'm going to keep him home and I'm going to engage, kind of like some of the stories we've heard in the past two episodes ago. I'm just going to do my own little program with him and work with him until he talks and then I'll feel comfortable to put him in school. It's just kind of a different approach. It's like an individual. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a different choice. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. So he says there's research that shows children who receive early intervention have better outcomes, but there's no evidence that there's a window of opportunity that closes at age five. And many parents see a ton of growth between the ages of eight and 13. Development is a lifelong process of increasing competence and gaining skills. Start early with an intervention plan that works for the family, but don't put money and energy into programs that aren't appropriate for the child. It doesn't help to follow a plan that's stressful or disruptive to your family out of anxiety and fear. And he says that the recommendation is actually 25 hours of active engagement per week with a focus on social communication and learning. But this can be part of everyday activities and routines like brushing your teeth or cooking together. And it doesn't have to be therapies. So, you know, I'm just kind of sick of this like pressure for parents to have like 40 hours of ABA. (laughs) That's what I'm sick of. Yeah. Okay. So what I thought was interesting was there was a pretty big discussion in the new chapter 11 in the new version of the book called Reframing Autistic Identity. Uh And it was talked a lot about disclosure, which I thought was really helpful and great because we were kind of left with that question after our last couple episodes, like, what's the best time to do that? How do you handle that? 
And what I love is that Dr. Barry talks about it in depth. He's definitely pro-disclosure. He says most people are able to feel like he had set up this really sad anecdote about this child who kept asking their parent, am I crazy? Am I crazy? Like they could not figure out what was happening. It's so sad. Yeah. And if they lack self-awareness that's needed to kind of understand that, then like, okay, fine. But most people can handle it. And so he kind of gives his four steps to disclosure, which I really liked. So he said the first thing you should do And this comes from um, Stephen Shore, who we've heard about in other chapters, too. First thing is to make the child aware of his distinctive personal strengths and positive qualities. Step two is to develop a list of the child's strengths and challenges. Step three is without judging, compare the child's strengths with those of potential role models, friends, and loved ones. And then step four is to introduce the label autism to summarize the child's experience and disability. So... This can be done over a long period of time or a short period of time, kind of depends on how well they grasp the concept. But overall, he says it's just more beneficial. And then the next question is, when should the autistic person disclose their diagnosis to others? So there's certain situations where that's more appropriate. Sometimes at work, you might not want to do that. And just like you wouldn't want to disclose like a illness or something that's going on with you. But... If it affects your job or you need certain accommodations, you might want to discuss that. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting for like older people who've been diagnosed. And then also he had a really important part that I loved where he talked about the tribe. I believe this is new because it kind of had the vibe of that. Yeah. And in the book, the heading for this section is non-speakers speaking up. So he talks about how in 2018, he went to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and spent some time with a subculture of the autistic community. There's a group of nine young adults called the tribe that all attend the school. They're all non-speaking. And he goes on a little rant about the difference between nonverbal and non-speaking. He says that nonverbal implies that you cannot access any part of a language receptively or expressively kind of. And that that's just like really unfair because Mm -hmm. they can understand and you can be verbal, but nonverbal if you can understand and use a language-based system. So really, we should call them non-speaking. Yeah. And that they have learned to communicate by using letter boards and spelling, basically. So there is a facilitator or like a communication partner, but they're not doing like hand over hand or any kind of guiding. They are basically just holding the letter board while the non-speaker points or identifies letters and then the partner is basically calling out the letters or spelling out what's being said Mm -hmm. so it sounds like it's pretty independent communication and they have been able to reveal tons of things how they're feeling this level of communication has given us so many clues he talks a lot about how It takes a lot of work to be able to develop this because whatever that difference in neurology is, it affects the motor and the communication between the brain and the motor, Mm -hmm. motor movements. They have to learn to overcome that. So kind of what we've been talking about before, where it's like really more of a neurological thing. It doesn't mean they don't think, you know, so now that they're able after a lot of hard work to get these messages out, we're really learning a lot. Mm -hmm. He talks about... Ian Nordling, who he interviewed for his podcast, he had worked with Elizabeth at the university for many years. And now that he's in his 20s, he's able to describe how when he was unable to communicate as a child, 
he had endured countless hours of therapy that he found pointless. And he said, have you ever had one of those nightmares where you're stuck in a horrible situation and you try to speak, but nothing comes out? He asked, that was me, but I was awake. So what you were talking about trying to decide what's best for the child, hours and hours and hours of therapy. I mean, obviously therapy mode and what's being taught is huge and makes a big difference, but I think there's a lot of messages coming out of these um, non-speaking individuals that we can really take into account when it comes to therapy and decisions that we make. So yeah. anyway, that was a really important part of the chapter. And I thought it was very interesting. And Dr. Barry says to always keep an open mind when it comes to alternative modes of communication. Yeah. Okay. I did want to say, because he did include some of the stuff you said about when to talk to the child about their diagnosis. And specifically, he said, when a child starts to express that he feels different or questions why they have difficulty with stuff that comes easily to others, then it's time, or when their self-esteem is suffering or they're making self-deprecating remarks or if they're a victim of teasing or bullying. Mm -hmm. And, oh, it was just so interesting because somebody posted on Instagram this last week, she reposted, a a speech therapist reposted an autistic adult who kind of talked about his process of he knew he had like speech therapy and stuff as a kid, but no one ever his entire life talked to him about his autism diagnosis. And I think his mother has since passed away and he recently got diagnosed with autism. Then he ran into a teacher from elementary school and told her about his autism diagnosis, that he just realized he had autism. And she just looked at him and was like, oh my goodness, you didn't know that you had an IEP for autism? And he was like, nope, no one ever told me. So he's been on this whole journey when, you know, it would have been so helpful if he had known maybe as a teen, you know, or at some point, it's just so important. So I got into a discussion with the speech therapist and was like, Adrian and I were just talking about this yesterday or whatever day we were recording our last episode. And she said that now at her school, just in the last few years, they've started making it a part of every IEP to talk about with the parents the importance of disclosing it eventually and like when to do it and just keeping that kind of like we said you were like is this something that should be talked about every year like where are you at with this are you guys planning to discuss it with them so you know people are making those changes yeah that's good (laughs) I mean there are some other questions that he includes let me just list some and see if we want to talk about these. So yeah, better to mainstream, be in a, spe- a special ed class or a private school. Is there too- such a thing as too much therapy? How to deal with a teacher or therapist who seems ill-equipped or unwilling to work with a child with autism? That brought up something weird to me. Like maybe sometimes these general ed teachers do get so overwhelmed when they have kids mainstreaming in their class and feel like, you know, I didn't go to school to be a special ed teacher. Is that what comes up? Because I'm like, what type of teacher (laughs) wouldn't want to do it? I don't know. Maybe the teachers who are just super overwhelmed or. Yeah. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I don't think they would outwardly complain. I mean, that's crazy, but maybe. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of parents ask if AAC prevents children from learning to speak. I did like the way he described this because, of course, we know that no, AAC does not prevent children from learning to speak. But he says, the motivation to learn to speak comes from success in communicating. So the more a child is successful, the more he will have a desire to communicate in the way 
that most people do, which is through speech. And I just had never heard it described that way. Like I've just always, when parents have asked me, I've said, no, actually it's the opposite. Like a lot of times it helps them. They just communicate more or they, yeah, they, they end up speaking sometimes, but to hear that, of course, the more successful you are with communicating, the more you want to do it. So whatever way that is. And he also says successful communication helps a child stay better regulated and helps them be more available for learning and engagement. There's also questions about what role siblings should play and then questions about whether autism causes divorce. But the frequently asked questions are really good. You can read through them. I feel like some of them, if you're a parent, they'll help you a lot. And if you're a speech therapist or teacher, it's good information to have to provide the parents with when they come at you with these questions, because I think these are things that a lot of parents worry about. Yeah, absolutely. What a great book. (laughs) Was there more in yours? No, that's pretty much it. I'm trying to think about summaries coming away from this book. I loved it. I think there was one chapter in the back that just talks about like people who are like pushing the cause forward. So We don't have to cover that, but it might be worth looking into if you're interested in hearing more about that. Overall, I'm just really glad that Dr. Barry's out there doing this work. I think we need people who are outspoken and knowledgeable and working with these individuals to share stories that give parents hope and that remind all of us providers out there to also have hope, you know? Yeah. And to your point, I feel like this book came out in 2015 It has like perfect five-star reviews on Amazon with thousands of reviews. And I do think that this book made some big waves across many communities, the autistic community, you know, speech therapists, teachers, I think parents, of course, because we have seen in these last about five to eight years, this changing attitude of people online, you know, people really advocating for neurodiversity affirming practices Mm. and we're just seeing such a change but I feel like where things haven't changed really it's like the schools and the pressure that's put you have those IEPs where the teacher's really talking about like kind of like test score type stuff and you can see the pressure that the teacher is under where maybe you have a non-speaking autistic child and the teachers being a little bit rigid about the way that they're testing them and reporting on them. And, and, you know, you just, you get that feeling like, where are our priorities when you have a five-year-old who's non-speaking and is spending a lot of their day dysregulated and you're kind of like, sure, I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of nuggets of information. I hope more people read it and I hope everybody who read it with us enjoyed it and learned something new. And yeah, I think it was a really good choice. Yes. All right. So thank you for reading Uniquely Human with us. So next week, the first week of January, we're actually going to kick off the year with a special episode reflecting on the last year, our first year of the SLP book club, what books we've really loved, what we've learned, how we're using it moving forward, or how we've already been using some of the information we've learned. And then the second week of January, we'll be starting Age of Opportunity, Lessons from the New Science of Adolescence by Lawrence Steinberg. We've talked before a little bit about how 
there's like the second period of incredible neuroplasticity in the brain that occurs around adolescence. And it really goes into the ways that we can be supporting kids during that time to make sure that they are on the right track and get the most out of life. So even if you're not a middle school or high school SLP, I think that this information will be really good for you to have because you'll be able to help parents who are approaching this time with their kids. So I'm excited to read it. Me too. So we'll see you then. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club.